Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the fifth anniversary episode and the 350th episode of The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They've been providing the theme music since day one, and I'm extremely grateful to them. And if you'd like to express your gratitude to them, and I know that you would, please go to respectsextet.com and follow the links to purchase their music. Thank you. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo all those years ago and keeps it looking nice. He is at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. All About Jazz carries this show on their website, and they've got a widget that you can use to display the latest episode of The Jazz Session on your website. It's very easy to get. Just go to The Jazz Session. No, don't do that. I say that every single time. Go to allaboutjazz.com, and in the search bar, type in Jazz Session Widget, and then copy and paste that code into your website, and uh, it should work swimmingly. If you need help, just let me know. I'm at jason at thejazzsession.com. Well, as I mentioned, this is the fifth anniversary of this show. The Technically, the fifth anniversary was this past Friday. That was five years to the day since the first episode went up. But this is the next episode after that. And it also happened to be the 350th episode, so it all dovetailed nicely. To celebrate, uh, a bunch of things are happening. Most importantly, probably, to most of you is the fact that I'm going to be giving away 55 CDs in honor of the fifth anniversary, 11 packs of five CDs by former guests on the show. These are all great records. First of all, they all made it onto the show, and you know you know my threshold for music, so at least if you have my tastes, they're all great records. Uh, so there's going to be 11 packs of five CDs, just randomly put together groups of five, with, you know, obviously no repeat by artist in the five, but other than that, there's no, uh, no rhyme or reason particularly to how they're sorted. To get one of them, please send an email to contest at thejazzsession.com with 55 in the subject line, 55. Contest at thejazzsession.com and the subject line, 55. And the first 11 people to email me will get a five pack of CDs by former guests on the show. Also, for those of you who are members of the Jazz Session, and I have to break in here to say, break into my own monologue with another monologue, to say this show literally would not exist without the members. I could not afford to live indoors and eat and therefore make the show if it weren't for the people who support this show with their membership. So thank you so much to all of you. And it's been a while since I've updated the member section of the Jazz Session. There's a bunch of cool stuff up there now. There's a solo piano performance by George Cables that wasn't on the show. There's a segment of Matthew Shipp and Darius Jones talking about Elton John. There's an interview with Les McCann talking about the anniversary of the Swiss Movement CD and more all up there in the member section now. Uh, this week, I'm going to be adding two new interview segments that uh, were not on the show. And in fact, with guests who were not on the show, but who I think you'll be interested in. And I'm also adding some music downloads, a bonus music from albums that were featured on the show, but that have some bonus content of some sort associated with them and that you'll be able to hear as MP3 downloads. So to get into the members section, you of course have to be a member and you can do that by going to the jazzsession.com slash join. And for as little as $10 a month, you can become a member. It's a great way to support this show. Your support is what keeps me going. That is no joke. In public radio, they always say, you know, if you don't support me, you'll have to turn the lights off and all that kind of stuff. It's hardly ever true. In the jazz session, it is in fact true. 
I won't have to turn the lights off because my my roommate, you know, will probably pay the electric bill. Uh, but I'll just have to move out so that the, whether the lights are on or not will no longer be a factor. So please do become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. And by the way, if you become a member at one of the higher levels, there are a total of six levels of membership, I guess, technically. There are three where you pay monthly, and there are three where you pay yearly. So if you join at the middle or upper of the monthly or yearly levels, the next two people who do that will get a copy of Anthony Wilson's CD, DVD set, Seasons. But joining at any level is a great help to me and therefore a great help to the show. So remember, send an email to contest at thejazzsession.com with 5-5 as the subject line, and the first 11 of you who do that will get a five-pack of CDs by former guests on the show. And if you become a member, you'll have access to the members-only content, and there's going to be a bunch of new stuff going up in there this week. When it came time to book the 350th show, I thought, well, I should have a big name on the show. And if I can't get a big name, then I'll just do some sort of five-year retrospective with a lot of editing. And so I reached out into the jazz world to see who I could get as a big name to come on the show. And luckily, uh, one of my friends out there in the music business was able to get Jimmy Heath, which was a total thrill. Uh, I went to Corona, which is a, a neighborhood in Queens, and he lives in the same place he's lived since the 60s. I think they've changed apartments, but in the same co-op complex where just a who's who of famous names have lived. And the neighborhood is just dripping with jazz history. It's amazing. And then there's Jimmy Heath. And you're going to get a peek into something. You'll be the first people to hear about it, actually. A fax he had received that morning of an old concert poster that has some pretty hilarious uh, naming conventions on it for members of his band, whose names you'll recognize, but not in this format. Uh, and it was just a blast to spend time with him. He tells great stories. He has a lot of great things to say. And I'm really excited to bring uh, NEA Jazzmaster Jimmy Heath to you for the 350th episode and the fifth anniversary show. So let's hear some of Jimmy's music, and then we'll hear my conversation with Jimmy Heath.
My guest is uh, the great Jimmy Heath. It's such a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure to be on with you. Now, I had somewhere else to start, but when I got here, you showed me something that uh, made us both laugh. And this is something that you just received from uh, <laughs> Jazz historian Lewis Porter. Uh, it's a flyer for a performance of your band in 1947. And maybe you can tell people the, the line on here that well, made us both laugh. <laughs> I had never seen this flyer until Lewis Porter sent it to me. And it says the club Imanon and the Elate Club Incorporated present for the first time a jazz concert and dance featuring Jimmy Heath's 17-piece orchestra, Johnny Lynch trumpet, formerly with Dizzy Gillespie and Andy Kirk, Johnny Coltrane <laughs> on alto saxophone, <laughs> formerly with Nat Toll. That's not true because I'm the one. You were formerly with Nat Toll. Yeah, Train never played. He played with uh, uh, some... With... Uh, he didn't play with Nat Toes. And Jimmy Thomas, romantic balladist. <laughs> balladist. <laughs> I-S-T. <laughs> I never heard of that one. Balladier, I heard. Yes. But balladist. <laughs> That's <laughs> a new one. Yeah, he could have been dist. <laughs> James Young, uh, saxophone, direct from 52nd Street. That's a guy who was in the band named Sax Young. He's a... Tenor player that got his saxophone the same time I, his tenor the same time I got my alto. In fact, he got a C melody. But anyway, and it's Sunday night, October the 5th, 1947, the Elates Club Auditorium, which was on Broad Street in Philadelphia. So my guess is that you're holding in your hand the only printed reference to Johnny Coltrane. I, I would <laughs> think so, because I knew him to all of, you know, when he got out of the Navy and came to Philly, his mother had moved, and he moved to Philly. And I've never heard Johnny Coltrane until I got this one, <laughs> and I laughed when I got it. It was comical, man, because a man, you know, he's known as Train or John, you know, one name. A lot of people call him, I just call him John, you know. Uh, my brother Percy used to call him uh, Country John because he was a boy. Was North Carolina, like Carolina, Percy. right? <laughs> they both came from North Carolina. But Johnny, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> now, where I had intended to start, uh, I'm actually we're in a part of Queens that uh, this is my own fault, but I've never been in before. And this neighborhood has an amazing, and not only this neighborhood, but <clears throat> the building in which we're currently sitting has an incredible amount. Of jazz history, and I thought maybe uh, you could talk just a little bit about this neighborhood and some of the people who've who've called it home. Well, Corona is a place where uh, Louis Armstrong lived first and foremost on 107th Street. This place is 114th, 112th, uh, and around the corner from Louis Armstrong on 106th Street, when I moved here, was Dizzy Gillespie's home. Um, in the building that I, uh, this is a six building co-op and the other building that I moved in when I first moved here in 64, uh, housed Cannonball Adderley and the building next was Clark Terry. And, uh, there were a few other names in the jazz world who lived here, lesser names. Uh, but 
you know, the whole area of Queens is known for a lot of uh, famous musicians. You know, they have uh, uh, the Flushing Town Hall. They have uh, a poster made called the Jazz Trail. And it had uh, where Illinois Jacket lived, where Ben Webster lived, where uh, Lester lived, where uh, uh, Charlie Shavers lived in East Elmhurst. Um, so this area was populated by musicians who came from all over and wanted to be close to Manhattan, but at the same time have a little open spaces like where probably where they came from. So they, the schools were okay, and they had trees out here, much more than Manhattan. Sure. Except the park, you know, you had to go to the park. But um, it was a place that, uh, it was just a place where musicians moved and migrated to. And uh, Milt Hinton was out there, of course, in, in St. Albans, and Count Basie was here, and... Uh, Tony Bennett was born, was born, I think, in Queens. Uh, I think even Glenn Miller, probably. You know, we had to explore that map. It's called the Queens Jazz Trail. How did you yourself end up out here? Well, I came because I wanted, I had two children, and I wanted to move away from the row houses in Philadelphia, and for the same reasons I just mentioned with trees, and there, there's a couple of buildings that were not here <laughs> that they've been, and getting ready to build a, a school around the corner, and they just put a couple new buildings, because I've been here since 64, so it's a lot of, you know, Shea Stadium was there. I could look out my window at Shea Stadium. Sure. And now that's gone, City Field is there. So a lot of things happened in the last hmm, 40, some, almost 50 years of being here. Did being able to have a fairly secure living arrangement, did that have a, a big impact on what the musicians who lived in this area felt they could do, do you think? With their well, lives? I think this particular complex was a co-op, and we own our apartments. So that was an incentive. Uh, but, you know, some of them had homes around. Uh, Dizzy had quite a large building around on 106th Street. Uh it's still there in the back of Louis Armstrong's house. So some of the people had homes out here and others lived in the co-op here.
You, uh, in fact, we were, it's right here on the table in front of us, uh, authored a book called I Walked with Giants, your autobiography. And I'm sure other people have brought this up, but the title itself seems kind of self-deprecating. That I mean, many people would consider you a giant, uh, and it makes it almost sound like you, you walked among them but were not... We're not well, one, and I'm not sure that's the case. No, it's a sense of humor, too, because that's I'm true. a little guy, and, and a lot of the guys we talk about in that book are six feet tall. <laughs> so it's a, a sense of humor. It's not a, a belittlement of my talent, and I'm not an arrogant person who would would brag on myself. Sure. See, I call those people Ego Stravinsky's. <laughs> And they think they're God's gift to the world and they're the baddest cats ever lived. But it's not like that. Music is a, a gift and everybody can get some of it. Mm. It's there for anyone to, to have. And uh, I don't think there's anybody that has a complete monopoly on music. Some of them came pretty close. <laughs> Speaking of Johnny... <laughs> <laughs> Johnny and Sonny, <laughs> they got a lot by saxophonists and Dexter. Well, but you got to go Dexter, Gene Ammons, Don Bias, Coleman Hawkins. Oh, man, come on. I mean, <laughs> it's just too many to, to concentrate on one, you know. Uh, however, you know, all of us had our heroes, and mine uh, was Benny Carter. On alto, and then I heard Charlie Parker, and Charlie Parker blew my mind. So then, when I changed the tenor, Train and I, we were both playing altos with Dizzy, and uh, we were listening at Dexter and Sonny Stitt, because they were the ones that were playing bebop on the tenors. And we were going to say, okay. I said to myself, if I've changed the tenor, maybe I can get away from playing all bird stuff. But it's not doable <laughs> because anybody that plays jazz and on the saxophone, some Charlie Parker's going to be in there. You know, there's great saxophonists. Man, what's uh, Zoot Sims, uh, Stan Getz, oh, man, Michael Brecker. You know, oh, God, it's still happening. Kids are coming up. You know, my my young man from South Carolina, just wrote me a great uh, compliment in a letter after he read the book and I mentioned him. Chris Potter. Mm. There's a lot of guys out here, man. Antonio Hart, my student. Some great saxophone players, man. And great musicians on all instruments. When did writing become important facet of who you are? Well, I think the writing became important having played in this band. That told that I, they say that John Coltrane played with, uh, but he didn't. I've, I started the writing or thinking about it when I was in that band, 1945 or 46, because the big bands were in vogue at that time. And, uh, having heard all this good music, uh, Jimmy Lunsford and everybody, I wanted to write the music. And so I was thinking about it strongly then. And my primitive way of uh, starting, uh, I mentioned probably in the book that I uh, asked people in the band, what note was that? What note did you play? What note did you play? And I'd write it down. And then I'd oh, that's an E-flat major 7 chord. I like the sound, the voicing. Playing in a big band is what started me to want to write. 
And did you at some point undertake more formal study of arranging, or was it primarily a band, you know, kind of learning as you go well, on the job training? One thing uh, I was taught by Dizzy Gillespie in 46 or 47 when the band came to Philadelphia, and he, they were invited down to my home by me, uh, and Dizzy came to the piano and showed me, say, man, you you're trying to write music? You got to learn the keyboard. And he showed me something on the keyboard that I still show students when I'm teaching. And uh, from that time, it began to evolve. And, you know, uh, people would show you things. So to that time, I was probably self-taught. And then later, after having recorded and written arrangements on my record sessions and everything, and having had a band in Philadelphia, eventually I took lessons. And I went to study with uh, Professor Rudolf Schramm at uh, Carnegie Hall in the back upstairs. He had his office up there. And he was a teacher of uh, what we call the Schillinger system of orchestrating and writing. And I learned, uh, I studied with him about two years. And did you find that the formal study made a difference in the way that you wrote and arranged? Yes, I, that's when I began to write larger works. Mm. And since that time, I've written probably 16 or 18 large suites and even one symphonic work and uh, string quartets and things that I hadn't gotten into to that point that Rudolf Schramm helped me with. The Schillinger system is a numerical system, and uh, I found out that a lot of people who I liked had studied that system. Remember the first time that you heard one of your arrangements coming out of a big band and, and what that felt like? Well, that was in Philadelphia when I had that band with Train. And incidentally, Nelson Boyd was on the bass mm. and Spex Wright was on the drums and uh, Johnny Coles was on the trumpet. And 
I realized later that I had a feeder band and called because all these guys ended up going with Dizzy, including me and Train. So I had a feeder band. But hearing, I think I wrote an arrangement on Mean to Me, and uh, I was studying a little bit. That's another time. Took a couple of lessons from Gil Fuller. Mm. Gil Fuller was writing for Dizzy. And he he would get us to do all kinds of uh, domestic work in his house, clean his house and do all this. And he'd tell us a few things about the music. Uh, he was kind of a strange brother that had a multi-talented man. And he he had studied also with the uh, SRAM or somebody in the Schilliger system. But, you know, when I heard that arrangement, which was recorded, uh, on a, a record called The Bebop Boys. It was a, 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 I think Gil wanted to get back at Dizzy. Him, he and Dizzy fell out for some reason. And, uh, I played in his band and we had a, a battle of the bands up at, uh, the place where Malcolm X got killed. Mm. Up in, what is it? Audubon Ballroom or somewhere. No, uh, the other place up in there. Anyway, uh, that was the first real arrangement, arrangement I was kind of proud of, uh, mean to me. And, uh, it's on a, it was on a reissued thing called the Bebop Boys. There's some things on there by Dexter and it's the Gil Fuller Big Band with this arrangement of mean to me. So I imagine that one had to be 47 after I left Philly and I came to New York. Were you nervous when you started writing original compositions to bring them in to a band? Mm, no, I wasn't nervous about it. Benny Golson was in my band, too, in Philly. And he wasn't the Benny Golson, and Train wasn't the co-train right. <laughs> that they became. So we all were uh, learning from our predecessors because mm. we were crazy about Tad Dameron's music and Gil Fuller with Dizzy's band and of course Duke Ellington we all were trying to get into composing and arranging Strain didn't spend much time on the arranging end he was more composing uh, he said he oh Jim I ain't got time for all that <laughs> he wrote one arrangement for the band that I talk about in the book on Lover Man. It was just gorgeous, man. And I said, Train, why don't you write some more? He said, oh, Jim, I got to practice. So Benny Golson became a great, uh, you know, orchestrator and composer. And I kept at the, the, the orchestrating. I still have a, a big band on occasions, and I write all the time. I'd be writing now with, if you weren't here interviewing me. <laughs> I'd be on back on my Macintosh computer with my finale program. I love it. What is it about the sound of a big band in particular that appeals to you? That's a good question because I tell everybody the same thing. In Western classical music, European classical music, you got a 50 or 60 people, Right. And that's a big sound when everybody's playing. The biggest sound in the, in the idiom called jazz is the big band. 
And sometimes you can enhance the big band with French horns or other. I do that. Uh, uh, Mingus did it. Uh, tubas and other instruments. But the big band is our biggest sound. You know, if we want to play a duet, you can get two guys out of the band and come down. If you want a sextet like Duke did with Mood Indigo, clarinet, trombone, and trumpet, you bring them out of the big band. But the opposite is not doable. <laughs> to get 17 or 18 people playing together, that mm. sound just goes all through me. I love it. The big band is our symphony orchestra. It seems, I mean, this is this is show 350 that we're recording right now, and certainly a number of these shows have had people now, I mean, younger people, people younger than I am even, I'm about 40, so people in the next generation below me who are leading big bands, and there seems to be a little bit of a resurgence in that idea of composing for large ensembles. I mean, it's, it's economically challenging, certainly, but I mean, people, I think, maybe are gravitating back to wanting more than just what you can get out of a quartet. Well... <coughs> I think music is more than just a quartet playing on it. You know, if you love music, you love all the different instruments. Mm. And I admired the fact, I told uh, Christian uh, McBride, I went to his big band, and he won a Grammy for his recording. His band has a, a hint of R&B in it, because when you call Christian, he got James Brown on the phone. You know, he's into that era. So he mixes that with his jazz chops, and he comes up with this nice mixture of, uh, it's still African-American classical music, but uh, I find that there are, like you say, there are more young people getting into that. Uh, the, the twins, the saxophone players, Anderson, mm. from... Uh, they went to Juilliard, and I was teaching there and stuff. And they are writing big band music. So like you said, they're uh, young ladies that have big bands. The big band is it, man. That's our symphony. 
So I can understand them getting interested. If they play one instrument, that's okay. But you got to, if you love music, man, I love a, a cello. I had them on my records. I had French horns on my records. When I make a record, I don't care. I, you know, I'm bored with the idea that you play the melody in a small group. The saxophone plays the melody. He takes the first solo. The piano takes the next solo. The bass takes it, and it takes fours. They change. Then he plays the melody out. Why can't you, the saxophone play the melody, or the piano player play the melody, and you come in third? You know, it's it's a matter of, I don't think that the saxophone is, is the only instrument in the world. Yeah. I heard some cats play some, well, why can't the trumpet play first? Why can't the piano play? Why don't the bass player play first? Why he got to wait to third after he's tired? And you work for everybody, and then you give him a solo. And then here you come with these fours. That format, to me, has been used. So, yeah. I mean, I got some great players in my life, some of my peers, that that's how they play. They play the first solo, the melody, the first solo. It may not give nobody else. <laughs> I say, well, wait a minute. Everybody has a musical story to tell. And I think, the, you know, in a big band, you know, you can do that. See, uh, when you're orchestrating, okay, you give the saxophone the first chorus. You don't have to. You give the trombones the melody, and it sounds different. You give the, the, the whole brass section instead of, okay, and then you give three people the melody, and then you build a big band afterwards. I got arrangements like that, where it's just the trumpet. I got that from Duke. Trombone and uh, tenor mm. play the melody, and then eventually we get to the climax with the whole uh, orchestra. So, I mean, that, the different textures, I, I learned that a lot from Duke, because and during when the time when Heath Brothers were at CBS and Columbia Records, I learned that the guitar and the soprano saxophone sounded good together, or playing a melody, or flute. You know, so all of these instruments uh, I like. So I need to mix all of these colors together. You know, there's uh, plenty of beautiful flowers in the garden. Mm. Quoting Yusef Latif now. That's what he said. There's many beautiful flowers in the garden, brother. And I think the like, – I go, I go to a ton of jazz shows just because of the nature of what I do for a living. Mm -hmm. And I'm often very bored by that, you know, mm -hmm. leader leader plays the melody, takes mm -hmm. the solo. Every single person on every tune takes a solo. They trade for it. <laughs> I mean, there's so much more you can do with the music. And I think arranging in some cases is – it certainly hasn't – it's not a lost art. But I think arranging, I would love to see arranging take more prominence in the contemporary jazz scene than it sometimes does. Nefertiti. Nobody soloed with Miles. That's Wayne Shorter's song. It's a great song. And he just let the melody stand on that one. 
You know, I think uh, the importance, like, you know, my friend Sonny, he knows the importance of melody. He'll come back and play the melody in the middle of his improvisation and let you know where I am. This is the song I'm playing. Then he may go off and play something, you know. But the melodies, if you uh, uh, repeat your melody, uh, one, I forgot the guy's name, but I read in the downbeat. The guy said, repetition is a ranger and a composer's best friend. Now, he could be uh, overly <laughs> using repetition. Sure. So uh, Cannonball made a statement. He said, oh, yeah, that's some hip monotony. Hip monotony is good, man. <laughs> Not too much, you know. Don't give me that same thing for ten minutes. <laughs> I've I've heard you say uh, about ballad playing that there were a few ballad players that you really respected, and yeah. that part of that was players who placed importance on the lyrics even when they weren't singing, when they were playing on an instrument. Are you one of those guys who needs to know what the lyrics are? And well, I learned that uh, from uh, the, one of the greatest tenor saxophone balladeers. Miles was very good at that too on trumpet. Um, I think you mean balladist. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. <laughs> That's what that writer said. Uh, but, uh, you know, Ben Webster was mm. one of the... I've seen what his effect on an audience is, and I've had a, an occasion to hang with Ben. And, and But I just know that he wouldn't play a ballad unless he, he knew the words. And the difference in he... And uh, Johnny Griffin said, oh, I don't need no words. I'm playing saxophone. But that, you know, there's something to be said about knowing the words. I always tell the students, if you sing, I don't know why, but I'm feeling so sad. I don't know why, but I'm feeling so sad. Okay, and love a man. If you say, I don't know why, but I'm feeling so sad. And put that accent on so sad. 
and you play that like that, it has a meaning.、Mm. It 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 brings out the emotion out of the lyric that you can get from a lyric. Now you know. So I believe that you should know the words, and almost all the musicians I know sing. To themselves and around the pad and everything, but they don't want to sing on the stage, and that's a, a, a thing I'm trying to get them to understand. That the bands in my time,、uh, Jimmy Lunsford or Tommy Dorsey, Marie, the dawn is breaking, Marie. So what's wrong with that? It's entertaining, and it's pure. It's music. It's nothing wrong. With it. Now I'm not one who said they should sing on every song, because when the singers came into jazz, they took over.、Mm. The singers used to come up in my time and sing a couple songs and get out of it. The band was what the people came to hear and dance to. Then the singers took over. Now all these sixteen people in back for a singer, backing up the singer. Say the same words over and over, baby. I love you. Let's go home and do it in a million different ways. <laughs> But it's the same thing, the same story. I like the fact that uh, uh, he, the writer, that、uh, lovely day, Bill Withers. Bill Withers, yeah. Yeah, he didn't write. He didn't write about just love. You know, doing it. <laughs> sex. <laughs> he wrote about other things of beauty,、mm. and he said that I, I saw in an interview. He says, "Man, you know, he wanted to write about other things. Grandma's hands." I was just going to say one of his most famous songs is about his grandma's hands. Grandma's hands.、Yeah. Whoa! If that don't touch you, you're not alive. Yeah. You know. So there's there's always something to learn in music. That's why. I'm so happy to be in music, man, because I'm learning something every day. It never. Once you think you know it all, then you're back to being. I told you, ego Stravinsky,、mm. and that's nothing, man, because somebody will come along. You know, with Cannonball, another. He, we were talking, and he said people asked him, say, "Hey, man, how you feel about playing after John Coltrane?" Or Dexter Gordon, he said. Well, I, I, you know, he's modest. I know I'll get my butt kicked playing behind them, but I'd hate to go off in the country somewhere, and Bill Green or Joe Jones or <laughs> Bill Smith, somebody I don't even know, kick my ass. And it's a different story. <laughs> so, but that, he's just modest because、sure. Cannonball is one of the greatest saxophone players that ever lived. And a, and a nice man, and you know. So my life has been just a beautiful, you know. I had pitfalls and and、uh, drug addiction, all that stuff. But I got out of it, and I'm living like it's on, almost like on cloud nine or whatever they call it. And it's it's just wonderful, man, because I run into students who I'm supposed to be teaching. And I say, man, I take some lessons from you, because everybody has an ability, a chance to be an exception at what they do.
I don't call anybody on earth a star. Mm. Stars in the sky. Okay? We just had an occasion where there was a star. On the cover of the TV for the last two weeks. Human beings, man. They got to have another word than that. Exceptionally talented, uh, tremendous talent. Uh, uh, there's so many adjectives and for people besides, oh, he's a star athlete. Where? He just got busted. What's it? Stars don't get busted. They don't have to go to the bathroom, eat. That's Hollywood. So I don't mind not being a star. How do you keep yourself moving forward? How do you keep challenging yourself and learning new things and reminding yourself that that's important? I think as long as I'm here on this earth that I will be striving to get better at what I do. I think that's my plight. That's that's my destiny. Uh, to do everything I can to make my performances and my uh, orchestration, my writing better to satisfy myself that I it's a continuum and it's not over. Because when you think that you got it all and, and you don't practice and you don't do your thing, you know, uh, all the time, You've, uh, your life is, is gone. The music is life, and life is music. Are you, it sounds like the answer to this question is yes from what you said earlier. You're the kind of person who writes every day? I'm writing uh, and practicing every day. Mm. <clears throat> Sometimes I have to miss, but you know, I'm doing one or the other. My wife can attest to that. <laughs> we, we've been yeah. married for two years and she knows <laughs> that I'm on it all the time. And when you're sitting down at the computer each day with, with Finale, what are you working on? I'm working on, usually on big bands, uh, scores, arrangements, uh, with, the, with the computer. 
And then I sit at the piano. Mm. Uh, it's either the piano, the saxophone, and the computer every day. So I used to play the flute, but I can't carry all that stuff now. Uh, and uh, the computer kind of put the flute in the case because you got to practice the flute all the time. And I spend more time on the computer. You know, I'm orchestrating big band music. And uh, I'm, when I get commissions, I take care of that. I've, I've gotten a whole, I would say, 10, 8 or 10 commissions to write larger works. Uh, and I concentrate on that and try to get some one for Seattle Jazz Repertory Orchestra a couple of years ago called The Endless Search. And I did one for the uh, August Wilson Museum in mm. Pittsburgh. And I wrote one called Soulful Re Reflections because he could reflect everything in his plays. And his... Winton has uh, commissioned me to write a couple things. I wrote one for Joe Henderson, uh, a five-part suite. And, you know, so those kind of things take a considerable amount of time. And I wrote a, uh, one called Three Ears for a symphony orchestra and a five-piece jazz group when I was teaching at Queens College. So I'm always thinking about composing or practicing or one and the other or, or arranging and finding different ways to do things if possible you know it's a miracle that from 12 tones in western harmony people have been writing for hundreds of years and still finding something a little different with the same 12 notes with yeah. the same 12 notes that's mind-boggling I saw uh, I saw on Monday an interview with Randy Weston Ooh. and uh, another yeah serious writer yeah and a lot of the interview the interview was on it was an hour long interview but it was on a news show a progressive news show and he, uh, so a lot of it was focused on work that he'd done kind of around the civil rights movement yeah. and work that he'd done with Langston Hughes and a lot of the people that we've been talking about today I mean everybody from John Coltrane to Dizzy uh, to Mingus who you mentioned to Duke mm -hmm. a lot of those people incorporated what was happening in the society around them into their writing mm -hmm. I mean we can think of everything from you know, Alabama to Fables of Phobos to Black, mm -hmm. Brown, and Beige. I mean, mm -hmm. the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. have, have you seen a place for kind of a combination of social commentary and music or politics and music? Where do you come down on that well, score? I wrote one called Birmingham mm -hmm. for orchestra down in, in Birmingham. Uh, and I've touched on that subject. Like, uh, mm, soulful reflections. You know, um, I've had some things, but my focus has been on <clears throat> individuals. And if I wrote a song for Train, Coltrane, Train Connections, or I wrote a song for Sonny Rollins, Forever Sonny, 
Or I wrote a song for my brother Percy, Big P. Or I wrote a song for my wife, Mona's Mood. Uh, my daughter, Gemini. My son, Gingerbread Boy. You know, so I'm concentrating on writing things for my people I like. You know, I've done that a lot. I just participated in One Last Saturday that was wonderful, written by Ernie Wilkins. Mm. It was called Four Black Immortals, and it was at Avery Fisher Hall. And that piece, he he wrote uh, for Paul Robeson, Jackie Robinson, uh, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King, the Four Black Immortals. I was here with all that, all these changing of uh, civil rights and what what have you. Uh, but to write a piece specifically for that, the only one that I can think of, but, you know, I've written 150 or something now, so I'm sure there's something in there <laughs> that is uh, about the rights and respect that we uh, haven't gotten. Um, but I know the one, Birmingham, that was kind of uh, within the last 10 years mm. I wrote that one. When uh, when Gerald Wilson was on this show about a month ago, and uh, he was kind of telling his life story, and uh, afterward I interviewed another jazz musician who had just listened to that episode and who said, you know, I think, and this jazz musician was about my age, mm-hmm. and he said, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of young students, they can't anymore even connect. They can barely intellectually connect, let alone emotionally connect, to what it meant to play jazz 50 years ago, if you were an African-American man, it was no. a whole different, or, or woman for that matter, it was a whole, yeah. a world that's almost lost to us now, it seems. Well, there's I mean, lost a, in a good way in some decided ways. <laughs> difference with the ethnicity being what it is in the jazz world. There's a decided difference. They, uh, some uh, say that there's no uh, relationship to spirituals or blues. They don't consider that as part of the jazz vocabulary. Um, and I've heard of certain people that tell people not to swing. But I, I, what I tell people about by me being here and seeing all of this, that I believe the greatest uh, musicians that I've been around and the ones that I would have uh, strive to be like had two components soul and science and without one you don't get it if it's all science I don't get it if it's all soul and no science so I came up in the in the bebop generation and that's when the uh, harmonies Duke and, and some people had done it before but they became really more uh, Western classically oriented, the science. Because Charlie Parker was, had the Firebird Suite score, many score in his, in his possession. And, you know, and we all were looking to Stravinsky and other things, other Western classical musicians to get ideas on harmonic uh, movement, mm. but we still wanted the African and Afro-American feeling. 
So uh, that's my concept. But now we have uh, even some African Americans uh, falling into the European science. I mean, uh, uh, you know, people, uh, Webern and Stockhausen and all those guys, they didn't even get over with the the white audiences. You still got W.C. and Ravel. What's wrong with them? And Chopin, you still got them. You don't have to be crazy now and, and play all this pointillism to be hip. Okay. I like a long note. My, my teacher, Rudy Sram, professor told me, say he had to have a long note at the end of a phrase. So you can digest what's been heard. You got something to hold on to and give people time to digest. So what they're doing, I think, in my estimation, is they're playing, I don't know, they're not thinking about an audience. The audience is dwindling and dwindling because we don't play anything with a, f- a feeling. You know, I always say one expression. When my pulse stops, I'm dead. <laughs> that was dead. <laughs> We gotta have a, I mean, I don't care what meter you're in, three, six, five, four, whatever it is. It's got to have some repetitious groove or beat. The Latin jazz is strong because they still have that, they have a groove. They hold on, hold on to that groove. You know, when we get to the two abstract, you know, my friend uh, Ornette and and uh, the guys who came around, they call it free jazz. Ornette could swing. Yeah, Did and I, I still say when you listen back to those early records that caused such a stir that Ornette made in the late 50s, <laughs> I mean, they're they're over a groove. Yeah, man, Billy got, Higgins was back soaked there. Soaked in blues. And, and everything he did was swinging. <clears throat> I mean, you could have the notes being dissonant. But I mean, the groove was still, that's what I like. I like something to make me uh, feel it. The music is a feeling, not just a, a, a I don't need a Geiger counter or anything to, <laughs> to, to figure out what they're playing. Can I tell you, and I will, I will admit this to you now because we're so close, that, uh, and I've said this on the show before, mm-hmm. that I, because I go out to see music most nights of the week, mm-hmm. and I, and I, like I said, I've said this publicly before, and I'm often bored, mm-hmm. and I, th- I like to think of myself as a very progressive listener to music and someone mm-hmm. who accepts yeah. music in all forms, but yeah. I also know <laughs> that for myself to really, to, to feel something mm-hmm. from the music, mm-hmm. I, tend to agree with you I, I mean i i need i need some groove in the center of the music i need yeah. i need the people to be playing you know from and this is very this is woo woo terminology but i need them to be playing from their hearts not just from their brains yeah well that's why i named that song three hearts 
the self calling peace because I say some at three hearts there's the body's heart there's the mind's heart and the heart itself the uh some people listen and they're analytical and they're gonna figure out what everybody's playing and some people just pay attention to something else and they start moving their bodies you know start moving and other people feel something in their heart there's three ears that's what i mean mm. the heart's ear the mind's ear and the body's ear Yeah, yeah, that's a really so, interesting So, I mean, I, got, I, I like to hear something here that touches me mm. where I live. Here. This is where I live. In my heart and soul. is inside me. And if I hear something, I, I like there. And, and there's a certain uh, order, a boundary line that you could get very intellectual because I've been listening to music for many years, all kinds and scientifically uh, astute or uh, brilliant music. There's a certain borderline where you get to the, you know, you get to, it goes too far. And it loses, loses contact with me because I don't feel anything. I'm, I'm you know, I'm frowning, I'm trying to say, and what the hell did he play then? What did she play? Oh, wait a minute. Whew. I feel that note, that good, long, sincere note. That's another statement Rudy Saram used to say. A short, short note is whimsical and playful. A long note is sincere. Mm. And that's true. That's why even the, the rock musicians, the ones like Eddie Van Halen and all the guitar players, they would play some fantastically scientific line and end on one note. <laughs> you know, you gotta say, come on, give me a break. <laughs> Don't kill me. It's a, it's a, a little bit violent too. Mm. I don't, I don't, you know. You don't have to be violent musically. Well, that feels like a beautiful place to, to end it. My, uh, my guest is Jimmy Heath. It's been such an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show, and I thank you for taking the time to do it. Hey, man, it's my pleasure to be with you. And, uh, you know, I hope it's a little different from all the others, maybe out of all those you've done. You've probably had a lot of these. Like no, this. <laughs> there's only one you. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been all a pleasure. Right.
Thanks again to NEA Jazz Master and, you know, living jazz giant Jimmy Heath for coming on the 350th episode, the 5th anniversary show. This is The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. Don't forget to send an email to contest at thejazzsession.com with 5-5 as the subject line. And the first 11 people who do that will get a five-pack of CDs by former guests on the show. Also, please become a member and support this show. Keep it going for another five years and beyond. And there'll be new content going into the member section this week. So uh, join now so that you can get access to that members-only content at thejazzsession.com. To join, just go to thejazzsession.com slash join. You can do it for as little as 10 bucks a month, and uh, it makes a huge difference to me. It really, really, really does. It's what helps me pay my rent and buy food. So that's a pretty big difference. Meanwhile, get out there if you would and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.